Welcome to the December edition of the U3A podcast. I'm Peter Clift, and on behalf of all the podcast team, I'd like to extend our warmest seasonal greetings to you. This is our 35th podcast, and it's difficult to believe that we've been going for over three years. Quite a lot has happened in those three years, but today I would like to look back over the last year and at some of the highlights of the podcast. But as it's Christmas, let's start with some Christmas carols with a bit of a difference. A Sheffield Carol. But what is a Sheffield Carol? Lee Welbrook met up with Professor Ian Russell and asked him where Sheffield Carols came from. The Sheffield Carols are something you won't find in Sheffield City Centre. They belong to all the villages that are on the fringes of Sheffield and out into West Yorkshire, South Yorkshire or the Derbyshire Peak. Where would you hear them? Well, you'd hear them in South Yorkshire, mostly in pubs. Some of the pubs will have a musician, an organist maybe, or a pianist, or even in one case, a string quartet, who will accompany the carols. And their accompaniment is absolutely crucial to that tradition in that particular venue. Other venues might sing a cappella, as it's called, and uh, they have maybe a striker who will strike them up and get the right pitch for everyone, and they will sing the carols in their own inimitable style. Because the one thing is certain is if you can listen to recordings of the carols without seeing anyone, and you can tell where the carols come from, because each village certainly has a unique way of performing them, a style. That's a very good introduction. What would be useful also is to understand if you can tell us a little bit about how this tradition emerged and if there's anything about the actual location, why that grew up in that particular area. There is a a reason for that. If we go way, way back, let's say about 1750, at that time, there was a style of music in the official church, the Church of England, a style of music which was accompanied by a a village band, a church band, and they would have maybe a cello, fiddles, or maybe they would have a bassoon and flutes and clarinets, but they would accompany the singing, and the singing would mostly be of psalms. Now, this style of performance went completely out of favour in the Church of England, but people loved this music so much 
that it became the bedrock of many carol traditions. So if you think of the carols as being in two parts, one, the words, and two, the music, the words were readily available because they were printed on sheets by broadside printers, sold by broadside sellers, often who were chapmen, people who went around selling ribbons, buttons, pins, and broadsides. And in them would be a set of carols. And these carols, nearly all of them can be still heard in the Sheffield tradition. So people had this access to the words. Where did they get the music from? Well, the music came initially from these church musicians who were not exclusively church musicians. They would quite happily play on a Saturday night for a dance or for a wedding or for a harvest home celebration. And they were very talented. But from about 1815, 1820, a group of high church men felt that the power of the clergy in churches was being usurped by such groups. And they outlawed them. And in fact, let's take Ecclesfield. I think it was 1827, the church choir got the sack. By 1850 in Ecclesfield, uh, they were replaced by little boys in surpluses, just like the cathedral choirs. And um, that suited the high churchmen because the high churchmen were about power. They were known as Tractarians. They were also known as the Oxford Movement. Above all else, it was the power of the clergy that was behind it all. I've heard the Sheffield carols once uh, quite a few years ago. And one of the things that struck me, particularly about the music side, was that while I recognised the words of various carols, the music that accompanied them wasn't necessarily what I know as the modern carol version of those. Is that something that's that's come out of that tradition of moving away from the church and being played by musicians out of a church context? The carols you are familiar with, by and large, were created in a rush, in a vacuum, because they'd expelled all this type of music. So from the 1860s, we get a little town of Bethlehem, once in Royal David City. They went to foreign parts to find things like Silent Night and other translations from Latin. They went to medieval carols to see if they could be updated and so on. Meanwhile, in ordinary villages, among ordinary people, especially in South Yorkshire and Derbyshire, they took the music that was no longer welcome, but they took it, kept it, preserved it, cherished it, and it was characterised by wonderful fuguing counterpoint where voices come in at different parts and singing parts. So if someone actually did want to go and watch and participate, what's the best way of finding out when and where they are being sung? There's two simple answers to that question. The first is a wonderful diary of what's happening every night. It started on about November the 12th, because November the 11th is considered to be the starting point for the carols after armistice and it's carried forward every day and it's called local carols you only need to google local carols and you get what's on this where people are singing tonight but that is um, an instant information and it also tells you if it's a brass band playing at the particular venue as well the other resource which i should direct people to is a resource called village carols so 
we've got local carols website and we've got a village carols website village carols website is my website and on there you'll find resources articles and you'll find lots of other things as well but those are the places to go to find out more you'll also find links to um, youtube lectures that i've given there is one other part of the country where carols local carols are sung with just as much enthusiasm and that is in cornwall and uh, you'll find some links there to cornish carols and there are other places around the world the most remarkable being glen rock in pennsylvania where emmy grays from north cheshire derbyshire yorkshire border took with them their carols when they settled in Pennsylvania, in Glen Rock, in County York, and have kept the carols going ever since. And so if people want to go and seek these out, local carols, village carols, search for those websites and they will take you there. So Ian, can I thank you? That was very interesting and a wonderful run through what sounds like quite an amazing folk tradition, which hopefully will continue for many years. of Sheffield carols, wonderfully sung. The Good News Carol was sung at the Royal Hotel and the organist was Sue Heritage. The carol tune has been credited to John Hall, a blacksmith from Sheffield Park who died in 1794. The words are found on broadsides but not in standard hymn books. Singing is thirsty work, so it's time for a cup of tea. Uh, Speaking of which, do you remember the Lion's Tea Houses and the Nippy Waitresses? It's a history that goes back to the turn of the century. But how did it all start? Neville Lyons from Guildford U3A is a member of the family and has recently given online talks to the Third Age Trust on both the history and the Lyons Electronic Office, known as LEO, 
which was the world's first office computer. Back in June, Nick Bailey invited Neville into the studio and asked him how it all started. The company started um, in a rather an unusual way in the late 19th century when the uh, families of the Salmon and Gluckstein immigrants from Northern Europe uh, in this country um, set up a tobacco industry and it was a very successful industry. They were the largest tobacco retailers in the world eventually. But what they were concerned with, the fact that they used to exhibit their products uh, across the country in very large exhibitions that were held during the Victorian times, the catering facilities were pretty low. They were very distressed, in fact, by the quality and price of catering. So in their innovative way, they decided to uh, launch out into catering. But uh, the senior family members were not very keen on going into catering, seeing that it had pretty down market sort of industry. Uh, so eventually they decided to uh, ask uh, one of their friends, uh, Joseph Lyons, to head up the, uh, the company uh, with his name so that uh, their name wasn't spoiled by catering. And that worked very well. Uh, because they held the reins on anything to do with the finance. But Joe was the front man and a very effective front man, uh, not a passenger, very, very uh, innovative himself. And uh, the whole thing went very well, so that eventually when uh, Joe died, they retained the name of the company. He didn't have any family to pass it on to. And the company remained under the name of Jay Lyons & Co. right throughout, uh, up until the end. Now, when I was growing up, I remember the Lyons uh, Tea Houses, which was self-serve. And then you had the Lyons Corner Houses, which had uh, waitress or waiter service. But I, I get the impression that from the beginning, it was a waitress service, wasn't it? Uh, it was, yes. Uh, they... They relied on on, uh, on they relied on sort of the attractiveness of waiter uh, waitresses, and um, before the nippy, they were called Gladyses, and uh, the Gladyses used to they were sort of Edward, Victorian Edwardian dress, uh, rather uncomfortable probably, and uh, I've seen pictures of them, uh, which. Uh, show that they were very heavily corseted. Uh, it was only in the 1920s that they decided to launch out into uh, a new dress for the waitresses, uh, far more attractive and comfortable, and they decided at the, name to, at the same time to find a new name, and they went through all sorts of uh, strange suggestions. They had a staff competition, but they eventually decided on the name Nippy, which reflected the speed and efficiency of these young ladies. Nick Bailey there with Neville Lyons, the grandson of the Joe Lyons of Cornerhouse fame. The four women from Gilwern's U3A's creative writing group in Monmouthshire have only been together for a couple of years and have already won a slew of local and national awards between them, including Harriet Hall, who won the 2022 U3A short story competition with her tale called Cinderella, What Happened Next? 
The other members are Bev Woodman, Linda O'Keefe and group leader Kay Blackwell. They invited Ella Watts to join one of their meetings back in February. So we started in February 2021 on Zoom, I hasten to say, because we were still socially distancing. We didn't know each other at all. Total, we lived in the same village, but none of us knew the other. So that was really how we got going on that. Mm. One of the difficult things, I mean, I, it was my suggestion, clinical, but you've got to start a group and start with something that perhaps somebody might find interesting. Mm. And how do you start off a, a writing group? And I, I thought about this quite hard for quite a while. And in the end, we picked something which worked extremely well. We used a painting. Um, it's a famous painting. It's Degas, the absinthe drinker. We started our first week with that. I said, write the story of the lady in the picture. Well, Harriet, what, your lady, what was she doing? Uh, she was um, wondering if she could possibly escape from a demanding and difficult husband who wasn't really interested in her, just wanted a housekeeper. And she was very skilled dressmaker. And so she's hoping that she could escape for a, a relation in outside Paris. Yeah, um, mine, mine was a young widow, I think, wasn't it? Yes. yes. You was were with her whose father, who's father-in-law was making um, unsavoury overtures towards her, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He wanted a housekeeper. He wanted cheap. Yes, he wanted yeah, a we housekeeper. Benefit. <laughs> we benefit. Yeah. Mine was, she was out for the evening with her husband and he'd totally forgotten it was the anniversary of their little girl's death. And mm. Bev. And mine was, it was speed dating in a pub <laughs> and he was a miserable sod and he'd only not even bought her a drink. <laughs> That was our first <laughs> first week, and we we all oh, was it was hilarious. When we read our stories on the following fortnight, four different totally styles different. of writing, yeah. fun, and it just went from yeah. there. From there, <laughs> yeah. I think that's a very interesting painting to start with. I'm just wondering if you were all on the absinthe at your very first meeting. Afraid <laughs> <laughs> not. Yeah, they can't get hold of it. The four, the four, the four green fairies. Yeah. <laughs> Ella Watts there with the ladies of Gilwern U3A Creative Writing Group having tremendous fun by the sounds of it. The 60s were memorable for many reasons. And there is the old joke about the 60s. If you can remember the 60s, you weren't there. But one person who was there and can certainly remember it is Anthea Whitehead from Bromsgrove U3A. Anthea told Val Dawson about her experiences in Aden when she and her husband were posted there in 1966 on secondment from the Ministry of Public Buildings and Works. We had hoped to go to Cyprus or Singapore. Um, and when Aden was offered, um, I think... I think we probably hadn't didn't have very much idea about where it actually was, but it it seemed like uh, a reasonable idea. It was actually the first time I'd ever flown. There was I. I was twenty one, and I'd actually never flown. And um, we went on a, a VC ten out of Heathrow um, direct to Aden, and I found that really very exciting. <laughs> Yes, you did. Yes, was it a, a very hot day when you arrived? Yes, the the the, the climate in Aden doesn't 
vary enormously uh, throughout the year. It's quite close to the equator. And there's only two seasons, the the wet season and the dry season. And the wet season isn't actually very wet at all. It probably only rains about two or three times in a year. And that is during the monsoon, which is in sort of January, February. One of the nice things uh, for me about it was that um, it was anticipated that you would have someone to help in the house. We had a houseboy at first um, who used to come in in the mornings and sweep up all the sand and do the dishes and anything that needed doing, um, which I found um, I find great, actually, because I've never been that keen on housework and to have a houseboy to come and do all those domestic chores was wonderful. I imagine social life was pretty good then. Yes, the the main social life, it revolved around the officer's mess, um, which was in Aden was at a place called uh, Tarshine um, and... That was the hub of social life. There was a pool there and um, and a bar, and they would put events on, and we would have cinema screenings. So you had your firstborn there. Yes. Um, he was born in the RAF hospital in Steamer Point in Aden. So anyway, you had a, a pretty luxurious lifestyle, but it, didn't, it all went a little bit pear-shaped. There had already been some... Um, local uh, resistance to uh, the British con- the British presence in Aden, and there was um, a couple of terrorist organisations. One of which I remember went under by the name of Flossy, which stood for the Federation for the Liberation of South Yemen, um, and there were uh, occasional um, grenades thrown at. British um, vehicles or premises. Um, we had, when we moved to uh, an actual married quarter, which was in an apartment block, our lounge window actually had a bullet hole in it, which was there when we moved in. Anne Whitehead, they're recalling her time in Aden, and it wasn't all GNTs by the sound of it. This story was part of an ongoing U3A series called All Our Yesterdays. As we've seen, this year our members have been busy again in a variety of projects with creativity at the heart of many. We've already mentioned the short story competition and this year's poetry competition produced hundreds of entries with some of the poets having revived their talents after retirement. Philip Smith from Sidmouth and Catherine Sim of Sandback were two of the prize winners. So how do you capture that sometimes fleeting creative moment? Poetry is a funny thing. You don't go home and write about a poem the same day that you've seen whatever you've seen. A tutor friend of mine says that it's all about composting. You've got to let stuff filter down and um, and then something will come out two months later. It might even have been a year later. You can't rush it. I've got notebooks in the car. I've got notebooks all over the house. I've got a notebook by my bedside table. Although that's a risky business because uh, you can write things down in the middle of the night and you look at them the following morning and they're absolute gibberish. Having a notebook handy is important because if you have an idea, you'll never remember it when you get home. I always want to try and write something that is slightly different each time you look at it. That's ambitious, but that's what I aim for. It's a conversation between between the reader and the poet. The poet 
shouldn't prescribe what the reader should be reading and understanding. And how many poems would you write in a year? Or do you have fallow months and and frenetic days? Oh, yes, yes, it, it, it's up, up and down. And, and the um, the panic that you, you when you're in a fallow period and you think, uh, oh, oh, no, am I ever going to write anything again? It's not an even spread. That would be lovely if it was. How many poems in a year? Between 20 and 30, I would think. I did start writing at school. I wrote for a school magazine and I wanted to be a journalist uh, at that time. And then there was a long, long gap. And I knew that there was something in me that still wanted to express. So it wasn't until I was facing retirement that uh, I took it up again, really. We had a pre-retirement preparation course as part of the organisation I worked for. And the leader of it said, now I'd like you all to go away and spend 15 minutes thinking about what retirement means to you. And I thought, oh, great. And I found myself writing a poem in about three minutes. And it just flew off my pen. That was the first poem of my re-engaging. That was really exciting discovery. My latest one was having to write a poem in the style of a deceased author. So I chose to write the coronation in terms of a John Betjeman piece. And that took a long time. <laughs> it was great. I so enjoyed it. A coronation love song with apologies to John Betjeman. Miss Camilla Shand, Miss Camilla Shand. Oh, strongly adorable polo girl's hand. The dances, romances, horse rides in the park. The parties, the picnics, all a bit of a lark. You with that bright scarf matching your eyes. The scent of your wrap and your laugh of surprise. When you saw me in Brighton in autumn that year, I felt for you, knelt for you, Camilla, my dear. Mrs. C. Parker Bowles, Mrs. C. Parker Bowles, I've always adored you. Tis a meeting of souls. What deep burning hopes I held in my heart for our meeting in Windsor was only the start. Mrs. C. Parker Bowles, Camilla, my dear, you married young Andrew, so I shed a tear. Then I wedded Diana. Love didn't last long, till you gave me great comfort, though I knew it was wrong. But many years later, I told dear Mama, I love her. She's splendid. She's my final hurrah. Now the gold coach awaits. So resplendent today. Why, there's crowds here from Durham, from Kent and Torbay. The Abbey is impressive and resounding with bells as we enter its portals. The fine anthem swells. At last, I am standing beside the great door. 
and here on my left is the girl I adore. We'll go through this pomp and the pageantry too. You will be queen as is fitting for you. Now watch that great crown. It's liable to slip. And Cam, if it does so, keep a stiff upper lip. And yet, in the distance, I can hear the crowd roar. Let's get back to Clarence by a quarter past four. The bands and procession are ready to go. So jump in the state coach and let's end this show. Now, the coronation was inevitably a popular subject for members, including the postbox toppers of Mepham in Kent, whose creations brightened up the main street. The group stalwarts Helen Pierce and Di Parker explained to Joe who and what would be in their regal show. Well, there's a thing that is going to be on top of one of the post boxes, possibly surrounded by little crowns. Some other people are making a crown. Uh, somebody else has made a golden carriage. I've made a orb and scepter. That's quite large, Helen. How, it must be about well, a foot tall. No, it looks as if it's about the same size as me, but it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's about not quite a foot, is it? It's not quite a foot. But they need to be, you know, quite substantial, I think, to really have an impact. Our idea was that we would have liked... Some sewing, some knitting, some crocheting, possibly some felting, as many different crafts as we, we could. So they're not just knitted. When we put them up, Di's husband comes <laughs> along and he, he secures it with wire. So nobody can go, you know, take them off. So <laughs> if, if I was to come into Mepham, where is your main post box? There's like one main road that goes all the way through and all the post boxes are on that main road. Yeah, so each post box will have something on it, yeah. We we have a little social as we're doing it, really. We walk up the village and we can do three within a good walk. And the really nice thing is the third one, there's a coffee shop very nearby. So <laughs> we'll stop for a, a well-earned coffee and then possibly walk up to the top one at the top of the village mm. or or just drive up there. Members often find their skills provide them with some prestigious opportunities, and one such is Jeremy Cheek of Hastings and Rother. His interest and expertise took him to Windsor Castle to work on the centuries-old coins and medals section of the Royal Collection. The man who started it was Charles I's elder brother, who most people haven't heard of, called Prince Henry. He spent far more on coins and medals than all the pictures and bronzes put together. Since then, it's had a very chequered history. And when George III died, he was very keen. He had 15,000 coins and medals. His son, George IV, who was rather profligate, known for enjoying himself, he gave away the entire collection to the state to pay off his gambling debts. So when subsequent monarchs bought things or were given things, they were literally put in the back of a cupboard. And nobody knew what was there until my predecessor came along and offered to sort it out. And I continued the job of publishing it. The main thing that brings them to life is the, the story behind them. What must be the most famous coins in the Royal Collection are the proposed coins for Edward VIII, who abdicated. The coins would have gone into production after two weeks when news broke of the impending abdication. So everything was hardly put away and forgotten about and the dice were melted. And it was only many years later when the 
deputy master of the Royal Mint died, people opened his private safe. They found this mysterious box labelled not to be opened except in the presence of two senior officials of the Royal Mint. And inside were six sets of the proposed coins for Edward VIII. So we can see what they actually would have looked like. One was given to the King George VI. When Edward VIII heard about it, he said, can I have a set? And the king, who was not best pleased with Edward VIII, said, no, you can't. In fact, they put them back in the safe and forgot about another 20 years, but they're now published. Family history is always a popular pastime, and Tony Neobard of Hawkwell Village in Essex is the Miss Marple of this world, having spent decades sifting the truth from long-held fictions. A lot of families have something that's been handed down through the generations. Often they are, they're embellished, as you can imagine, over the years. But there's usually a grain of truth in it. And the story that I was handed down as a child was about some ancestor of mine, and I didn't know who it was, but I knew that he had been shipwrecked and that he was adrift at sea for four days and four nights in a little boat. And on board the boat were some rough sailors and a cabin boy. And the story went was that after a few days of being at sea and having nothing to drink but seawater, they all became a bit addled. And one of these very nasty rough sailors said that they were going to eat the cabin boy. And uh, this brave, heroic ancestor of mine said, if you touch that boy, I will tip up the boat and we'll all drown. And then one day I thought, well, why don't I see if I can actually get to the bottom of this story, find out anything more about it, who it related to. And I did find out indeed who was shipwrecked. He was on a small boat, but he wasn't for four days, four nights. It was actually 18 hours. But I also had the official inquiry report, which explained that they didn't have much water, but they did have bottles of rum and other alcohol. So I think if they were addled from anything... It was from drinking the alcohol rather than the seawater. And there was a cabin boy. However, I think that bit about them being hungry was probably a bit of an exaggeration because they did have half hundredweight of ship's biscuits on board as well. U3A members are certainly an interesting and busy and creative bunch of people, as we've seen. And this has only been a short look at some of the topics we have covered over the last year. We are already looking for more stories from U3A members for next year's podcasts. Now don't think, oh, they won't be interested in me. Some of our best stories over the three years that the podcast has been broadcast have come from members who have said just that. So go on, get in touch with us. And you can do that by emailing communications at u3a.org.uk. Now my thanks to Nick Bailey, Ella Watts, Val Dawson and Joe Watson for the interviews in this edition. And studio production was by Lee Wellbrook. And all that remains for me, Peter Clift, on behalf of all the U3A Radio podcast team, is to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.